Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 229 of the Solier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Brittany Kreckler. She's an assistant professor and clinician scientist at the University of Cincinnati and the PI of the Dysphagia Rehabilitation Lab. Her clinical and research interests center around rehabilitation of swallowing impairments using exercise and skill-based approaches. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. I am excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to get into all the things we're going to get into. So first, tell people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a clinician scientist. I work at University of Cincinnati. Um, Technically, my title is assistant professor, but I do one day in the clinic where I'm on the ground seeing patients. And I actually really just started this clinical research position in October after I had my son. So um, it's kind of good timing because now, gosh, it's been six months almost since I've started. So um, kind of building my clinical practice and then the other four days, I do research and I'm getting my research lab started. We're called the Dysphagia Rehabilitation Lab. We've got a logo, got a research assistant. So we're really kind of hitting the ground running in the new year. And um, so that's that's me. What I That's what I do. I, so I, I support a lot of clinical research. And then on um, the other hand, have a lot of like more controlled trials that we're running and we're planning um, or grant writing we're in that, we're in that startup phase. We're like a startup small business awesome. is essentially awesome. where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so exciting to hear about all this. Cause I think you don't get to hear about it. You get to hear about these programs that have been established for 30, 40 years and nobody knows that there's actual humans that started it at some point. Like, 
Exactly. It really is like one of my mentors was saying, yeah, it's like a startup. Like we're in the startup phase where it's just me and my research assistant. And then you look at labs that have been established at these universities for a long time. You think of those big meccas of swallowing research. And then it's, we're trying to kind of build that here at University of Cincinnati. And my team here, our team is amazing. And everyone's so engaged in both the clinical care aspect and the research aspect that we're just so supportive of each other. I've just never worked in such an amazing collaborative environment where everyone's got one foot in the clinic, but then also their head in this research world. It's been a lot of fun. And I'm honestly like in my dream job. This is like amazing. So it's a lot of work, but it's, it's great on paper. It, it, it involves a lot of late night phone calls, but it's really a good, great time. And we all, um, we're all a bunch of nerds essentially and love the patients. And that's why we are on those late night calls is because we're thinking about the patients, how we can make things better for them, give them the best, you know, quality options for care. Awesome. I, I love hearing that. And I, I love that you're in your dream job. I think I just get so discouraged when I hear SLPs say like, I'm miserable in this setting or I hate my job or I hate this profession. You know, I hate when they umbrella it under like, I hate the profession. It's like, no, you're just not in a good spot. And so I I just always tell people like, I promise, like if you are passionate about this field and helping patients, I promise there's a good setting or a good facility or a good location for you. Sure. Yeah. I think like a big piece of that is maybe related to burnout. And I have a lot of friends, like we've, we've been practicing now, you know, for getting close to like eight, eight years and they're kind of starting to hit that burnout phase. And I, and I think a piece of that is maybe not knowing exactly or seeing like these therapies that they're doing with patients that aren't working or they're having patients refractory to treatment and it gets frustrating and their patients are looking at you like, can you help me? And you're like, I'm trying, but I don't have the tools to confidently say like, if you do this and that you will get better. And so that's where kind of our research program in the dysphagia rehabilitation lab, that's the ultimate goal is to contribute more on the ground therapy tools that we can use to there's always going to be patients that don't respond to treatment. And I mean, that's, that's in medicine broadly, but I just have some, I just feel like if I were in a clinical setting where I would was doing that day after day, it would be so frustrating and I would feel burned out and miserable as well. So I encourage those clinicians that are feeling that way to seek out. If, if you're interested in research, we always need clinicians that are motivated and interested in research because they're the ones that really are on the ground and know what's needed to be done. So contact your local university. (laughs) There's someone doing swallowing work. Yeah. 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 I I love this. I feel like this is going to lend well into actually what we're going to get into today. But I think, um, I think that lends beautifully into what we're going to actually talk about today, because I think, you know, I've talked to other professions and, and, you know, not that anybody practices cookbook medicine, you know, I I really hate that term, but it's, it's almost like, for other professions and things, there's more prescriptive ideas of treatments and things to try. And, and dysphagia is still so young and immature in, in that aspect that we we don't have cookbook medicine, which we shouldn't anyways, but there's still just so much we don't know about the treatments that we are doing, as opposed to are there other things that are better? Are we just do we just need little tweaks to what we're currently doing? Do we throw everything out the window that we've been doing? So yeah. So, so tell everyone what we're going to talk about today. Cause I think that was a perfect segue into this. Yeah, I definitely agree. And you're, and you're talking about the cookbook approach. I mean, I feel like a lot of grad students that I'm seeing, cause I do some guest lecturing and I've done some supportive grad grad classes. They come in almost looking for that exactly what you said, cookbook approach. And it's like, 
that's the beauty also of our field is that there is no prescriptive cookbook, but it's also the challenge in our field and like having to reassess and make sure that what you're doing is actually making progress, either patient reported or as visualized on MBS or fees. It's, you know, that's the, the beauty and the beast in what we're doing. So I agree completely. And I have lots of thoughts about that now that I've been on the ground for six months without patients, it's really shaped the way that I think about research and the way that I'm using the research to inform my clinical practice. Like I have to walk that talk that I've been doing with those lectures to students, other SLPs, until I actually got my feet on the ground. I, I would preach kind of this I, these ideas of how to apply research in this kind of, you know, not cookbook, but like it's more of like a framework to to how we approach this phase of rehab. And now I'm like living it and it's just, it's challenging, but I love it at the same time. And there's just so much room for growth. Yeah. I think it's a really, it's an exciting time to be an SLP and have that interest in trying to push the, the envelope and figure out what to do with these people. And I, I keep saying every patient I see to me is an N of one, like I am trying things with them. I'm using the research and then I'm, I'm checking if it's working, like whether that be what they were telling me, they're feeling better, um, using PROs or actually taking them back to floro. Yeah. Because you know what? That's standard of care. If we don't, if we think something's working, but we don't know, then you, you push for that order for another MBS where you do a fees and you say like, is what I did, is that actually working? And I know in some settings, it's really challenging to get those things done. But what I've learned here from um, my, our clinical supervisor, and she's amazing. And um, Farah Kaval, I'm just giving her a shout out because I've learned an, an incredible amount from her is she's always saying, you have to advocate, you have to ask. And if you don't ask, it's always going to be no. Yeah. So yeah. those SLPs in home care settings, in facilities, there are, there are ways to get visualization if you need them. You just have to ask for them. You have to push your managers. You have to go higher. If, you're, if they're telling you no, you, just, you have to keep pushing, but I mean, it's extra work. And I, and I get that we're already maxed in so many ways in clinical settings. You have no time, but if, you know, if it's meaningful to the patient, if it's something that's motivating to you, then, you know, push that higher and higher and try to get, get what you need to really, you know, visualize and, and be able to treat these patients, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 It's, it's obviously one of the reasons I do this podcast, but I love having people like you on because I think you know, what do they say in implementation science? It takes like 17 years to get like research into practice or something like that. I'm like, we don't have 17 years. Like we, we need to get this information to the clinicians like now. So right. Our field is yeah. only like yeah. 17 years <laughs> times right. three old. So that's really scary. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's exactly it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. So let's, let's dive in. Where do you want to start today, Brittany? Oh gosh. I'm trying to remember. I sent you a list of things Yeah. that I was interested in. I mean, I don't know. One of the papers that people, I keeps popping up and people keep, there's a couple of papers that I've worked on that people are telling me like, Oh, you know, we read this in our journal club, or um, I found this to be a helpful paper is um, the dose, the scoping review of doses and dysphagia therapy. Um, That was one of my dissertation papers. And now that I'm in clinical practice, I actually literally do use it. (laughs) I have it printed out. And I use it myself when I'm coming up with different exercise approaches. And um, it makes me happy because I've told people like, 
I would print this out and use it, but now I'm actually, I'm actually using my own review. So it feels really satisfying that we took the time to do that review because I'm using it. But um, that paper just, it goes through kind of what do we know in dysphagia rehab? What are the different exercises that have been tried? What are the different dosing components that build, that build or make up that exercise? And then what outcomes have actually been measured in a research setting that target specific impairments in physiology? Um, and this, and this kind of leads to like a bigger picture of what our research program is looking at um, and dose is something that I was really focused on and, and borderline obsessed with during my PhD uh, because I was attending dysphagia research society meetings since I'm trying to remember the year I started going 2015, 14. And they were, you know, there were all these, that was kind of the, the time where there were a lot of therapies coming out and a lot of, you know, like tongue exercise and EMST and, just kind of all these like therapy uh, device facilitated programs. And I kept like seeing them say like, okay, we did this many repetitions on this many days. And then I just was kind of asking my, my, my doc mentor, Nadine Connor kind of, Oh, wait, where do these, how do they come up with these numbers? And then I started digging into the literature and, and most of these papers were citing like the American college of sports medicine kind of recommendations for, for exercise. And I, was, I thought, okay, well, that, that's a good place to start. Um, but during, during my, my doctoral studies, I was also taking a lot of exercise and kinesiology courses. So I was just really interested in the idea that we could exercise muscles in the head and neck that improve swallowing. I mean, that's really what drew me into research when I was interviewing at programs and I was interviewing with Nadine Connor and I was reading about tongue exercise and how it could make swallowing better. And I was like, this is amazing. And, that, and I'd always been interested in exercise and I, I'm like an athlete and I do all, you know, running and biking and swimming and yoga. So the idea that you could do those types of exercises in the head and then improve dysphagia was an amazing, like novel thing to me. But then as I kind of got more into the literature, I realized the gaps and just the lack of necessarily translation from we have this exercise, but then like the benefits to swallowing mechanics were kind of fuzzy based on the literature. And that's kind of what came out in that dose review as well. You know, there are some studies that show, show change, but the way that they show change are they're using measurements that aren't necessarily gold standard or, or standardized or validated. And in, in research world, that's always a concern because we have biases as researchers as clinicians, when we work with a patient, we want them to improve. So if we don't have like a blind look at the data or if we're not using a tool that's standard, we might inflate those outcome measures, not on purpose, but just because we truly want them to improve. So, you know, some of the studies and a lot of the studies in our field kind of have those bias biases, concerns, so like the outcomes that have come from a lot of these exercise programs, sometimes we, we aren't sure if those are true or not. So I'm kind of like getting off topic, but essentially when I got into the data, I, I was like, wow, tongue exercise maybe doesn't actually necessarily magically improve swallowing. You know, having somebody do this program of tongue exercise isn't going to translate necessarily to improve swallowing. So that was, that was kind of my, my jumping off point. And then I was curious if, well, maybe if we change the dose, because 
we're in the head and neck. We're not in the arms and legs and trunk, which is where the sports medicine literature comes from. They've done testing for years and years and years, and they've biopsied muscles and they've done all these very controlled trials in order to come up with those recommendations. We haven't done that work in the head and neck because we're, we're so new because the muscles are really small. They're interdigitated. We can't just go in and take a piece and then run biological tests. You know, a lot of our outcome measures are just patient reported or what we see on fluoro. So it's difficult to say if we should be using the same dosing principles in our muscles, or we might need something totally different because it's a totally different system. And I think that's kind of where we're headed as a field is doing that testing in our specific muscle groups to really figure out how to translate and maximize those gains. And that's something that I think in the last you know, 10 years that I've been in the literature and reading and learning is just that we can't assume crossover and also transference to swallowing is not always guaranteed. And, and you hear this all the time in grad school. And I mean, I still hear it because I'm listening to motor learning literature, but the best way to improve swallowing is to swallow or the best exercise for swallowing is swallowing is something like, you know, I feel like we read, we hear, we're taught, but a lot of our exercises in dysphagia therapy don't include swallowing. So it's kind of a disconnect. And so I think that moving forward in both research and clinical aspects, what I've been thinking about is how to build both pieces in so that one, you know, you, you need a certain amount of tongue strength function skill in order to swallow, but you also need the swallowing component built into your training. So like, for example, what I've been doing is when I see patients and I have them doing like tongue exercises, I have them also swallow so that they're kind of like their brain is thinking about their tongue, but their brain is also thinking about swallowing. Now, this is getting very theoretical because we haven't tested this yet, but I have a theory that a lot of what we do in swallow therapy is simply drawing attention to the swallowing muscles by turning on those cortical systems. So swallowing is something that happens without thinking. Obviously, when you're going about your day and swallowing your saliva, you don't have to think, okay, okay, let's swallow. Let's put the bolus on the front of the tongue. You know, it, it, it happens, you know, it's a central pattern generator. It's just all packaged together. But then when there's a problem with that system, I think, you know, in engaging in swallowing therapy and having a patient turn their brain on or their cortex, the part of the brain that thinks and makes decisions and, and having that pay attention to all of those movements is actually a big piece of what we do in swallow therapy is just drawing attention. And so um, in, in that kind of, those are kind of three bins of thought that I have about clinic and research. What, what's the impact of being aware and having cortical control of your swallowing? What's the impact of kind of training those tongue muscles to engage in a different way that they've never engaged before? What kind of signal integration does that create? And then when you pair that with swallowing, like how do the, those three things kind of come together to package like an improvement in like the whole system? So like, that's kind of how I'm like picturing rehab is like, we need, we need all of those pieces. So you can't swallow if you have a tongue that's too weak to generate enough pressure to swallow, but you also can't, can't swallow if you have adequate airway protection. You know, there's a lot of different mechanics that are targeted. So I guess that's just kind of a train of thought that has come to me since I've been working with patients that is kind of 
shaping the research part of our program. Um, I recently did the McNeil dysphagia therapy program training, and I thought it was really an interesting method and an approach. And I've been integrating parts of that into the therapy and uh, into the therapy I've been doing and thinking about research questions. And so, um, you know, I, I feel like having kind of those opportunities to train in different approaches is always great. You know, if you have CEU money to like try, try to use that money to do different, different trainings and learn different approaches and then kind of shape your program. But that bolus driven swallowing approach like is a really interesting thing to me and it's been around for a really very long time and um, they have you know they have research published and they have research ongoing but that's something that I'm kind of interested in diving into a little bit in in the years to come but um, I'll kind of stop there and I, I told I, I went into a lot of different that's things. okay no no that's okay but I think I think it built it built into some kind of picture at the end here in my mental Yeah. 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 Well, and and I think to go back to sort of what, when you were talking about dosing, you know, I think I remember when it was that Gary McCullough wrote a paper a few years back about like dosing for the Mendelssohn and all of a sudden everybody was like, yes, like I I can't remember what it is. It's like 20 reps or something like, and everyone's like, that's what we do for every patient. And it's like, ah, uh, yeah. Well, uh, no, I, I don't, like, I don't think it was meant to be interpreted. Like this is what we do for every single patient now and you'll get better. Um, so I think, you know, the dosing aspect is really interesting for each exercise, but then, like you said, you know, I, I love sort of your three prong approach because, you know, there, it, there obviously is something to doing tongue strengthening exercises, but then combining it also with an actual swallow, um, you know, and I think, you know, coming full circle, I, you know, when I took the MDTP program and did I say that right? MDTP. To me, that sort of put it all together. Like, why are we doing these little piecemeal exercises when we should actually be targeting the swallowing as a whole? So I think, you know, I love what you're saying here, that there's definitely a nuance and a dichotomy to using both because they, they both have a place in our literature and they both have a place in rehab. Sure. And I think that's like the, I think that's, like the the rub and like the whole problem is that we are trying to come up with these discrete protocols and cookbook things, but really it's about the recipe. It's not about the ingredients. It's having them all together. And like, and that's what's targeting the overall physiology problem. So there's a new framework. I mean, it's not new. It's actually been around for a while, but it's um, kind of being applied more recently to speech language, hearing, swallowing issues. It's called the RTSS framework, and I'm going to forget what that stands for. It's like uh, re- rehabilitation treatment systems, something as framework. I can send it to you so you can correct like what that yeah. is. Yeah. But it's um, essentially the idea of, of that ingredients. It literally uses the term ingredients where it's you're combining multiple approaches to target complex problems. And and I'm not going to explain it right because I feel like it's, I'm still kind of learning it, but essentially that idea that you have a problem in physiology. And I feel like in, in the past, we've always said, okay, like you identify okay, tongue-based retractions, a problem. You apply this approach like one-to-one, but really it's like, okay, this is an, a, a problem within the context of all these other things happening. So you need multiple systems to engage, to improve that problem. So like I said, I think a lot of, I have a theory that the tongue stuff and like 
doing tongue exercise is not actually changing the biology of the muscle fibers, which is what we've previously kind of built that idea around. Because in, in limb literature, we know if you do, like if you lift at like a certain percent of your maximum um, at a certain repetition per day, intensity per week, over eight weeks, you can literally change the way the fibers are constructed and the contractile properties of the fibers. Now, that's because they, like I said, they've been able to take biopsies. They've been able to confirm the biology is changing. We can't do that in humans because these muscles are so small. If we take a piece out of it, it's going to damage it permanently. And that's just not worth it. So what we've done is we've, we've exercised, we've, we've done tongue exercise studies in rat models and we have looked at their tongues and there's some mixed, there's kind of some mixed evidence of like we're what the changes are to those muscle fibers. So um, that's what Nadine Connor's lab does. And that's where I did my dissertation work. And I looked at, I only looked at one muscle in the tongue, but it didn't change necessarily. And some, some of the fiber properties that I looked at things that I would have thought would have changed. And so that really kind of got me thinking about, are we actually changing fiber structure or are we changing something higher like motor integration like at the, at like the nerve muscle where the nerve and the muscle talk, like, are we changing the way that the muscles recruited? So, I mean, I think that like everything, the answer is never going to be yes or no. Likely we're changing a little bit of both, but I think that doing that work kind of just stepped me away from thinking about it as a, as a muscle change, like at the, at the fiber level and, and a little bit more higher, like what are the other levels that are changing? Like the, the NMJ, like the, um, where the muscle, like I said, where the muscle and nerve talk to each other, how is that changing? How is it changing in the brainstem? How is it changing in the cortex? And those are, those are issues that we'll work out in research land and try Thank to you. try Thank to, you. Yeah. yeah, try to, <laughs> and I have, I have some collaborators at UC that do imaging work in, um, like PT rehab and they, they're looking at locomotion or walking and they're doing this kind of cortical and brainstem. They're looking at those changes. So they're asking the same questions that we are, but they're looking at it in the body. And so I'm saying we should, we should also look at these things in the head and neck. So, cause these are going to inform the way that we do our treatment. So all about to say, I think that there's just something to training the tongue to do a new task that it's never had to do anything, but, but push food or, and liquid back for its whole life until it met a device that it has to push on and the tongue is like, well, wait a second, like this is new. And so whenever you learn something new that creates it, an imprint on your whole central system in that you're learning a new task. So, I mean, these are things that we may never be able to fully tease out, but I just think that there's something to that learning of a new task, having the tongue do something completely different. That's changing the way those things are wired. It might be changing those muscle fibers, Again, in humans, we'll never we'll never know because we can't take those biopsies unless they figure out a way to X-ray that. We're, I've never heard of anything like that. It's imaginary. Those are those are like the questions that I think just kind of help me g- get a bigger picture of like the whole thing. Like we're not just exercising something to make it stronger. Like we need it to be better at at doing a skill, which is swallowing. Swallowing is not about strength. Like you don't have to generate like a ridiculous amount of pressure to swallow. It's more about swallowing for a whole meal or swallowing throughout the day. So I think this focus on strength over 
endurance over skill is something we have to kind of move away from, even if it's just mentally, um, when we're making our therapy approaches, I think it's really interesting to think about it in a different context. And I think that helps kind of inform those bolus driven ideas too, even if, you know, adding swallowing quote practice to your therapy program, it's never going to hurt. It gets, it's doing the task that that patient needs to improve. The, the motor learning literature has like a lot of really great information. And there's a, there's a great paper by um, Lori Burkhead that talks about kind of like motor learning principles in dysphagia rehab. I've read it like a thousand times. I think every SLP should read it because it's really just as a nice job. I think it's 2017 paper, 2015, but she um, really lays out kind of the principles of, of motor learning and how they apply to swallowing and just gives, gives more context to you know, rote practice versus translation to swallow function. And I think those were the reading those types of papers have really informed the way that I think about swallow rehab and then also the research. But um, there's something else that kind of bothers me about <laughs> about swallow rehab and exercise. If I can like get on my pedestal. Yeah, about that, please do. Interested. So I have I've developed a couple of lectures recently for grad students, and it's really forced me to go back to the literature and look at all of our maneuvers and what we call exercises and really, you know, cause I, I really was very focused in the tongue during my dissertation work, but I was lecturing to these students and I'm like, I can't just talk, talk to them about the tongue. I need to talk to them about the Mendelssohn, about effortful swallow, about superglottic swallow, what all these things. And I honestly was like, what are these things targeting? Because during my, during my doctoral work, I was just working with inpatients. And so, I mean, really kind of limited in what we can do with them. Now that I'm working with outpatients, I'm really grateful that I have developed these lectures because I went back to the literature and really looked at like, what are these targeting? What's the evidence behind doing them in a therapeutic setting? And I was really surprised to find that there's not a lot of evidence behind some of these um, maneuvers. So what I did in, in those lectures is I, I really parsed out kind of what's what's an exercise, like what is something that we've studied as, as in done those things. Okay, so you have somebody do a maneuver or an exercise and you look at them doing it for like eight weeks and then you see kind of what the outcome is. And that's that's an exercise. Now, there's other things like effortful swallow that really have never been looked at in that manner. So we've looked at an effortful swallow, like under floral with manometry. We know that when you give someone the instruction to do an effortful swallow, it, it improves, you know, residue and it, it increases pressure in the, the pharyngeal space and in some oral space. I guess I'd have to go back and look at the exact page, but pressure increase in general. But we, but we don't know that if you have someone go home and do like that 40 times a day for, for six, eight, 12 weeks what that happens to the swallow if they're not doing an effortful swallow, if that makes sense. So they've never looked at like how the effortful swallow as an exercise changes swallowing physiology. Now, I think having, having an understanding of the distinction between like a maneuver versus like an exercise is something that we kind of haven't really like done as a field. And this is something that I've done when I'm, I'm talking to students and I've done in my own clinical practice is kind of separate them out and put them in bins and, and treat them appropriately. Now, some clinicians might swear by effortful swallow and they're like, I have them do it and they, and it works. And then I'm like, by all means, 
keep keep doing it. But I think that it's also really difficult to research the outcomes of these types of maneuvers because we rarely do them in isolation for the reasons that we just talked about. You can't just do like one thing and it's going to fix everything else. So I think for the researchers, we have a burden to test these things one at a time to figure out what are they really doing. And that's in like a controlled research setting so that we can understand how to best combine them in a therapy program that we're using in the clinic. Cause we really have very few studies that look at like, okay, what is effortful? If you only effortful swallow for eight weeks, like what does that do in swallowing? And that's because there's rarely any patient just needs and you know, they're going to need other things too. So I think that's like, again, on the burden of like the research world to kind of get us, get, get, get a better look at those things. But in the clinic, like you, ha- you have to do something today. You can't wait the 17 years or however the heck long it takes. So that's kind of another thing that like, I think in, in graduate education and also just in, in our re-educating ourselves, like as more evidence comes out, we have to continue to touch base with kind of what is, what is the evidence showing but then also what's working in your clinical practice and sharing that with your fellow clinicians. Like we are always talking at UC, like, Hey, I tried this and like, this is really working. And, you know, having those forums and engage, I mean, I think now in the virtual world, that's really improving, but yeah, that's kind of just something that has bothered me for a long time. And now that I'm in clinical practice, I I understand a little bit more about kind of the context of where those maneuvers and strategies fall you know, in, in actual practice. Yeah. I think, you know, going back to sort of what you said about, you know, to reduce tongue based retraction, we do this exercise, you know, I think that's just what so many clinicians want. Like if this, then this, and I've been guilty of that too, but I think what, you know, I, I love what you said about, like, we sort of have to go up and just consider, you know, all the, the neuroanatomy and physiology and, and motor learning, like you said. And I think once we add that component in, it just makes us that much stronger, you know, as, as clinicians and there's a lot of, there's a new, um, there was a paper out by, uh, Georgia Melendraki and Kate Hutchison. I can't remember what they call it, but they have like this treatment framework. That's basically where you pick, like you, 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 you get your study, you've, you've visualized your impairments and then you pick like a couple approaches to apply at a time and versus throwing the book at them. Like you choose like two very specific things and then you have them do that at home and in the clinic. And it, like a lot of the work that I did during my doctoral program too was around adherence. And it's like that idea that giving them two very discrete things to do will improve their ability to do them at home. I really liked that paper and I, I've really been using that in my practice. And sometimes I only choose like one thing, but then now I'm trying to also have them swallow, like whatever that thing is, like build swallowing into it somewhere. It, even if it's just their saliva, like pair it with a swallow. Um, I got that from, from our, our lead clinician too. She's like, Oh, every time I do anything with tongue pressing, I always have them swallow as well. It's like translating it to swallowing. So I think that having like just some, just some kind of framework versus like a, a one-to-one it's like, yes, you're targeting that, but you can also target something else. And then I actually just explain to my patients and I literally say, you're turning, you're telling your brain to pay attention to what you're swallowing and how you're swallowing. And that's totally new. Like you've never paid attention before until you had a problem. 
but I'm just, I'm just guiding you into what to look at, like what to pay attention to specifically. And a lot of them have said that's been really helpful because when they're, then when they're in their home environment, they actually notice and tell me things. And I'm like, that's amazing. Like who, I wouldn't have thought that that would have, you know, would make a difference. I'm doing this kind of bolus driven uh, modification with a patient right now who it was still on peg feeds like for like a year after she had like a really unique base of uh, like in the base of her neck, like tumor with, they were sected a bunch of cranial nerves. And she, she finally came to me after like a year, but she had not been referred for swallowing treatment for like a year, which is a whole separate podcast about medical awareness of swallowing issues and how late we get these people. It just blows my mind. So I'm like, so sorry that you're just now getting to me, but she had made so much progress just on her own, but really she just needed like a little more specific guidance on what to focus on. And she's been off her peg for two weeks. Like she's probably going to get it out. I mean, she's eating more efficiently at home. I mean, it's so motivating to actually like see it working. And like, she's so, she's a a dream patient because she's so insightful. And she was telling me like, oh, like my, my chewing is getting better and I'm having her do head lifts. And I'm like, this is so interesting. Like I would not have, I wasn't targeting your jaw, but she's like, when I'm doing my head lift, my jaw, I feel my jaw shaking and it's activated. Now that has me thinking about how can, so, I mean, I think getting the patient motivated to like, tell them like, okay, you're, you're like, we're doing, we're doing a research. We're doing research with you. Like, think about like, tell me things like get them like excited about making, making it better. Not every patient's going to be motivated like that. Of course, she's very unique, but I've just, I've learned so much from the patients and telling them like, we're getting your brain to pay attention. That's the majority of what we're doing is getting your brain to pay attention to all these different things that you've never had to think about before. And they, and they seem to be latching onto that and, and noticing and yeah, I don't know. So I also tell them this might not work. (laughs) Yeah. Full disclosure. Like we're new, like we're in our infancy as a field. We're going to start, we're going to have you try these things. And if they don't work, we're going to try something else. And I feel like being transparent helps too. I don't know. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. 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 There's, I I got a few questions with that. Do do you think, uh, what what do you think about doing just saliva swallows versus an actual bolus? Like, do you think that that matters? Do we know if it matters a lot? So I think that it, it probably does matter. I mean, I would say, I would think that the MBTP folks would say it definitely matters based on like the way that they've created their framework. Um, I think that it definitely matters in that different textures have different sensory motor, like motor needs. So like liquids versus thicker liquids versus solids. So yes, I think that when you're doing tongue, you know, exercise, if you have like a bulb or something like putting a liquid in there too, is just like a hot mess. And especially if they have trouble coordinating. (laughs) So that's why I do the saliva swallows with the tongue. Cause we actually have a study that we're doing with healthy people and we have them putting the bulb in, taking a sip and swallowing. And it's like, it's kind of funny because they're like, this is hard. And I'm like, yeah, this is why we're not doing this. So (laughs) it's like, um, I think that if you can build in like actual swallowing boluses, like is a great thing. I mean, based on my experience with this patient, I was talking about like 
I would, she has efficiency was her main problem. Now, if I see anyone with efficiency issues, I'm going to for sure have them swallowing the things that are hard. And what we did with her was like, we started with things that were super easy, like pudding and yogurt, and then went to like what she was eating an RX bar uh, yesterday. Those are so hard to chew and swallow. And she was like crushing it. I'm like, you're doing better than I would do with this RX bar. So I think, I mean, it depends on, I think that the nature of the problem but bolus, I mean, I think adding a bolus is always going to be better, um, but just doing it in a context that makes sense within what you're working on, like, or you have doing like tongue, you know, you're there, they have tongue weakness, which is something you, you need to have like a stronger tongue in this functional reserve ideas. Like I, I like that, but then how, yeah, having them also do maybe they do swallow practice and then they do tongue exercise or something where swallowing is built in. That's, that's kind of my goal. Like is with my patients, I'm trying to figure out how to build swallowing into their home routine somewhere. Like even if it's just during a meal saying, okay, like when you're eating next time, pay attention. I want you to like, really think about it. Yeah. I think, I think it's so fascinating. Like, you know, my son is six and he's just learning to walk. And, you know, I, I just love listening to little cues that his PT will say, you know, something like foot. And that just like, all of a sudden, when she says that, like, he all of a sudden looks down and he like picks his foot up. So it's like, what what you're talking about, just calling attention and awareness to it. It's, it sounds like such a simple, like, duh, of course you would, but it's, it's, it's fascinating. The whole motor learning aspect is just so fascinating. And it's just been so interesting to watch, you know, my son's little brain figure these things out too. And absolutely. That's a really great parallel. And I think like we have, I mean, they, wait, we shouldn't, we, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. But like, we do need to apply those things to what we're doing in like, uh, you know, in a research setting. But I mean, like I said, you can do this like end of one every day with your patients and, and try and see what works. And I, I love that. Like calling, yeah, just calling, oh, my foot, I need, I need to pick it up. Like I can tell my foot to pick it up, but also then once he's walking, he's not going to have to say, okay, put one foot in front of the other. You know, it's like amazing how those systems pick pick that stuff up for us when we call that cortical attention. So I think that's an area that I'm hoping, I, I'm sure other researchers are, are thinking about this too, but this always happens in research. You think that it, you're the only one thinking yeah. about it, but then actually 40 other people, I mean, there are not 40, yeah, but yeah. maybe four, yeah. um, which is good because like it takes forever. So the more people we can have working on these problems, the better, but yeah. Um, yeah I mean, in terms of the, the length of time that it takes, I think now, talking about, I think it's, it's helpful for clinicians to realize like how much regulatory stuff we have to go through on a research end. And so, I mean, I, for example, have an IRB that we are just now starting an IRB stands for internal review board. And it's essentially the university has to make sure that the people that are doing your study are safe and that you're not torturing them or because there have been horrible researchers years and years and years ago that did bad things. So now we're paying for their mistakes, but it's good. So they review the study and they say, okay, like you're safe to proceed or you need to do these things. So I submitted that like in in the summer and we're just now about to start. And it's a very simple study. And I mean, and now every institution is different in how long it takes to get approvals, but that's just it just a kind of an example of like how long it takes to even just, you have a great idea, but then to start doing that, and get the money to do it is, is a challenge for researchers. So what I would say is awareness is our biggest 
issue in our field just broadly. And that, that trickles up, I guess, doesn't trickle down. It goes up in becoming a problem in that there's not funding for, for our research questions because there's a lack of awareness. And so this phase awareness is in June, I believe. And um, I mean, I, I, there are a lot of walks and like awareness months, but like just, I don't know, in June, you could really just try to take that time to inform as many people as possible that dysphagia is a problem because that it just really, that trickles down into everything else that we do and the resources that we have to answer these questions. Because like I said, you can have the best idea, greatest therapy, can't get the money to research it, can't get the approval. Then once you know it works, then it's getting it to the clinicians that need it. It's like that part's hard. So it's slow, but I think, you know, having resources like your, your site and, and having discussion boards, I think those are ways that we can get the information to the, to the people on the ground. Um, but just, I don't know, just, I think that's helpful as a clinician to kind of understand the context of like, why we don't know the answer to these things necessarily, because it's just, the answer is it's hard and it's long. It takes a long time to get it done. Um, even once you get the study started, then there's a lot that goes into analyzing and writing it up. And um, so I don't know. I think I think it's just nice to have kind of an idea of the, the, the roadblocks that we're facing in research. Yeah. Yeah. I think something else you said about your your patient that you said is sort of like a dream patient. And, you know, she told you like her, you know, she felt a tightness in her jaw when she was doing it. But I think I don't think we give enough credit to our patients. I don't think we take enough feedback from them. Like my husband had some weird pain, like, and he was like, feel this, feel that. And, and I like, was asking him all these weird questions. Like it was literally like right around his like his laryngeal area. And I was like, what do you feel? Like, where did it come from? And it came from his dentist had ordered this like mouthpiece for him to sleep in. Okay. He just was clenching his jaw all night yeah. to the point that he just was tightening his throat muscles so bad. And it was just like residual pain all day. But for me, it was an interesting, like probing concept to get to the bottom of it. And I think, I don't think we, we do that enough with our patients. Like, what exactly are you feeling? Like you're feeling it here. That's interesting. Like you're feeling it here. What else are you feeling? And I think sort of asking those questions gets us to to help that patient specifically, but also helps us get to bigger hypotheses too. Like maybe this is something we should look into or theoretically or anecdotally, this really might be helpful for you. Sure. I definitely agree. I, I know we're getting close on time, but your husband and his tightness reminded me of something that I'm recently really interested in related to that tightness and like getting the patient's feedback. Um, something that we do here at UC in the clinic, and I don't do it because I'm not trained yet, but it's like myofascial release. And I've read about it. And it, I, again, I was very focused in the tongue. So I kind of like had to fuzz out like other things. So I was trying to really get, get into the tongue. But now I'm, I'm interested in that patients are kind of reporting different symptoms. Um, I mean, a lot of times referral to like a voice specialist is needed, you know, if they have like muscle tension dysphonia. Um, there's this question mark about if muscle tension dysphagia is a thing, but this like myofascial release therapy that they're doing here, I've observed. And I mean, you notice like immediate change in the patient voice, you know, and if that's their voice is changing, they're swallowing, certainly something could be happening there. And I, there's, there's probably literature out there. I haven't really do dove into it. So I don't want to say a whole lot about it, but I think there's an interesting maybe place for that type of 
therapy in the context of that, like bigger picture, that ingredient, because if the muscles are, um, and actually I was in, I was in PT, uh, well not PT. I was with a sports medicine specialist about my hamstring. And I was telling him how I went to a PT and my hamstring was, um, my hamstring on the right was weaker than my left, which is odd because I'm right dominant. And I told this sports medicine doctor that, and he was saying, well, it might not be that your hamstring is weaker. It's actually really tight. And that was, he was doing some massage to release it. And he was saying that it might be that those, that it's, that muscle is tonically contracted. It can only generate, you know, as much force as it can by, it only has so far to shorten after it's already shortened in this tonic contraction. And that really got me thinking about like how that could affect swallowing muscle force, like in speed generative capacity, if they're, if they're tight. So like muscles to contract, they have to, and you can't see my hands because it's a podcast, but here I am doing my hands. Um, you know, they have, the fibers have to come past each other to contract. And if they're already, you know, tight, tightly contracted, they don't have as far to go to create that force and generate, you know, the, the contraction. So I, it just got me thinking about, I'm like, well, this is, the, the, sometimes I feel like the universe sends you things at certain times. So I had that appointment and then I had, um, I was observing the myofascial release, like literally the same week. So it was just funny because I, I was just like, wow, I really feel like there could be something here for swallowing, you know, especially people that are, are like tight and have tension. Like what, how is that contributing to like their ability, those muscles in their throat to like move. And we need, we need a lot of movement in swallowing. So that's, that's kind of like a small aside. I mean, you might end up editing that out because there's not a lot of thought, but I just thought that's something that's interesting that I'm going to kind of look into a little bit more, but like, I have way too many things that I'm interested in at this point. I'm never going to get anything done, but yeah, no, that's awesome. Thanks for This has been just a wonderful conversation, I guess. Is there anything you want to leave, leave the people with? Oh gosh. Well, actually I, I do want to thank all the clinicians that are doing this work every single day because I'm honestly in awe of you. I bow down to you. I am just like so grateful that you're on the ground doing the work because I'm doing it one day a week and it's so hard and I leave the clinic exhausted and I feel like my brain is just like zapped. And so I'm just so grateful for everything that you're doing. And, and I hope that, um, I don't know that you learned something interesting or that I got you to think about something in a little different way that, that helps even one of your patients would mean the world to me. So thank you for the, for your time and having me on. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brittany. I appreciate this so much. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.